Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We are already into the midterm election season. Wow, where did the time go? California will host its primary elections on June 7th, and my guest this week is hoping to advance into the general. Kermit Jones is running for Congress in California's third congressional district. He's a doctor, a former White House fellow, a former Navy flight surgeon, and a public policy expert. Guys on the ground are the ones rushing the gates, and they're the ones they get hurt. It's our job to get them, and we take that very seriously. President Biden now marking one million lives lost here in the U.S. to COVID. Behind every number is a loved one lost, a family changed forever. West in California, crews are still struggling to contain a dangerous wildfire. It has burned at least 200 acres and destroyed at least 20 homes in an affluent area south of Los Angeles. We got our first look at the draft of the statewide redistricting maps last week. They're not final, but there are some big changes. Dozens of state lawmakers could find themselves facing each other after the independent commission moved district lines. My name is Dr. Kermit Jones, an internal medicine physician and Navy veteran. I'm passionate about making sure people get full access to our healthcare system. Women keep their right to choose, and that people get real leaders representing them in Congress. Sorry, not sorry. Kermit, thank you so much for being with me on the podcast. Very excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your background. You grew up on a family farm, is that correct? That's correct, Alyssa, and, and thank you for um, inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. I grew up on a small family farm in Michigan. Our backstory is we originally started south side of Chicago. It's where my parents met. They went to junior college and then had local school there. And then they just felt that they wanted to raise their kids, my older brother Oliver and then me, in a better environment that was far safer than what they could find there. So they moved about three hours away from there on a 40-acre farm, which at that time my dad tells me, Interestingly enough, they bought 40 acres and a three-bedroom house for $47,000 in 1978. They grew that. Um, that was a lot of summers that I spent working on the farm, chopping wood, helping with the cows. We had 50 head of uh, Black Angus cattle, expanding the blueberries. Eventually, we had over 250 acres, and we're part of one of the largest blueberry growing associations in the country. So that's my family story, yeah. That's incredible. And I think that there's something really special, not that I'm raising my kids on a farm, but we live on five acres and I have nine horses in the backyard and 80 oak trees on the property and frogs and bunnies and eight chickens and five dogs. And I think that there's something so special for children to be 
around that. And I was, you know, it's late at night and you're on Instagram and you're looking at whatever feed and you get, you spiral into some place where you didn't intend to go. But there was this great Instagram reel about the water was running, the stream was running, birds were flying, and it said that human beings are meant to travel at the speed of nature. I thought, like, how far away have we gotten from that? Well, yeah, I mean, the way I grew up, but then later on in life, when I look back, I went to college, I went to Clark Atlanta and Georgia Tech, did electrical engineering, and then went to medical school and law school, and eventually went into the military. But when I look back, my foundation were the community values that we were brought up with in that small farming community. Our neighbor, Mr. Brown, Helped my dad set up the farm and then across the bell, they helped with uh, working with things. And eventually the Browns took care of me for about two years and my mom was in nursing school. And so I think that whole idea of pulling together, getting the job done, doing what needs to be done. And then literally like our backyard was my science playground, you know, in terms of learning things and experiments and seeing the way things work. It follows you for the rest of your life. And I think it gives you values and this appreciation of giving back uh, to your community and giving back to your country. How about just community? We've gotten so far away from that. Was there something specific that led you to all of that? What led you to medical school? I tell people that being an eight-year-old following my mom around, who was a home health nurse for 30 years before she retired, I think part of the story that I remember is I would go to the library after school, my mom would pick me up, and then on the way home, and that's seven miles between the library and where we lived, she would have patients that she would need to go see. And this was before the days of HIPAA. So some of those patients, especially in the winters in Michigan, they didn't want an eight or nine-year-old kid sitting in a car. They said, hey, so why don't you come sit at our dinner table while my mom takes care of you and dresses your wounds? And they loved her. You know, some of those kids, some of those patients of hers ended up going to my um, plays when I was a kid. I was like Thomas Edison in fifth grade and all this other types of crazy stuff. And just seeing the effect that my mom had on our patients, seeing the trust that they had on her. I saw my mom give CPR to a woman and save her life. So seeing that example of my mom be a a stalwart in our community led me to want to become a doctor. Uh, She wanted to go to medical school. And then after my brother, you know, in the 70s, again, they felt it was more economical and faster for her to go to nursing school. And she thrived and loved that and then ended up moving, you know, inspiring me to become a doctor. And so That's what led me to medical school. And then, like I said, shortly after, that's what led me to the Navy. After 9-11, you joined the Navy as a flight surgeon. I can't even imagine what what that was like. Can you tell us about what motivated you to join and just a bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, totally. I think like many of us, 9-11 was a a big shot. Um, You know, I was focused on getting through med school, getting through law school. I wanted to do health policy. And we were in the, the, the basement of Duke Law School with maybe 10 or 20% of the students there were from New York. So they're worried about their families, trying to figure out what happens next, watching everything unfold on TV. And then there was a blood bank drive on campus. And so we were in the back of the Red Cross blood bank, listening on the radio to everything going on. And I thought to myself, I will be hopefully a doctor as a civilian for the rest of my life, for the rest of my career. I want to be a doctor that's taking care of the people that I know are being deployed to help protect our country and be a response. And so for that, I decided at that time that I was going to join. 
I went to the recruiter, spoke to them, spoke to a captain that kind of expedited my process to get in. And within a few years, I had gone through training and active duty. And then I ended up at the Naval Hospital in Bethesda and went that course of eventually uh, training in Pensacola and being attached to a Marine helicopter squadron where I deployed to Al-Assad and Al-Takadam in 2007 and 2008. Our whiskey sector departure, Fox 23 at this time. Roger, the casualty is at the aid station right now at Wilson. Shadow Talk, dust off 5 1 second. 1 7, that's you at uh, the park. This elite team is called Task Force Shadow. They're not here to fight, they're here to do the opposite rescue and treat the wounded. I recently learned from a veteran friend of mine that to say thank you for your service isn't really the right thing to say because nobody really has a real idea of what the service entails. But I just want to say thank you for your your sacrifice. I'm sure what you experienced shaped the person that you are today. You spent time as a primary care physician. Tell us about your patients and what that work taught you about public policy. Yeah, I think the primary reason I am who I am and the type of uh, spouse and father that I am, as well as the reason I decided to run for office and get into public service again, is because of my experience with my patients. I have I graduated from med school about 17 years ago. I calculated at one point, I've seen about 20,000 patients. And I think what humbles me the most about being a primary care physician is the degree of trust that your patients place on you. You know how it is. When you talk to your doctor, you are completely open about everything. And that is a safe space. You make tough decisions together. And it was part of that and understanding the role and the importance of how sacred, for lack of a better word, that space is, that kind of made me want to get more involved in the public policy standpoint of it. Because it is disheartening when you have politicians or you have people that want to invade that space with their own personal agendas. What you end up with are patients who can't afford their medications because the CEO of some of these pharmaceutical companies are just greedy. They really are. One of my best friends from law school, he literally puts money aside in a trust fund for his daughter, who's a type 1 diabetic, to make sure that she had enough money for insulin over her entire life. And I think the most humbling experience that I did have as a physician is I had to be intimately involved in my mom's care, circling back to the person that inspired me to be the person that I am, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in 2018 and never smoked. And so seeing how difficult it was for her to navigate the system and her needing me, a doctor and a lawyer, to get through it, it lets me know how broken our system is and how many people need the type of help uh, that we're trying to advocate for. It is infuriating. It really is. And the pharmaceutical companies, to me, are the epitome of evil. They are the bad guy in this movie. You were also a White House fellow in the Obama administration. What was that like? 
I tell people that was the most broadening experience I've ever had. If you can imagine being Cinderella and, and having the glass slippers on all night, and then at the end of the program in August, you're forced to give the slippers back. It was just eye-opening and breathtaking to be a fly on the wall when so many important decisions are being made. I was special assistant to Secretary Sebelius, got to work on innovation issues and healthcare policy issues for veterans. I tell people I got to have lunch with Harold Barmas, who is a Nobel Prize winner and the head of the National Cancer Institute at the time. And he's sitting in his office, literally with his shoes off, just sitting there chilling. And I was just like, this is so surreal. Introducing, at the time, General Colin Powell for a dinner and just talking to him and him telling his stories about leadership. Like sometimes you just felt like you had to pinch yourself. Getting to meet the president himself uh, and, and ask him policy questions. Really just, like I said, a phenomenal uh, experience and one that I try to share with everyone I can. Every single person who ever asks me about the White House Fellowship, if they connect with me on LinkedIn or anything like that, I give them a phone call and I talk to them because it truly is a breathtaking experience. I think quite honestly, it helped shape my viewpoints after about how important it is for us to get past partisanship and just get back to serving people in their communities, taking care of people as individuals, uh, and putting their interests before the interests of people that are elected officials. It seems to me as an outsider that there is such a legitimate fossilized disconnect between national policymakers and the on-the-ground healthcare providers. Would you agree with that? I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. You know, I was one of those people, and I read in your book, I'm so sorry that you contracted COVID and, and went through that process. And I'm glad that- Still ongoing. I was going to say, I, I'm glad it seems, but I guess I was wrong that you didn't end up with long COVID or anything because I've had patients that have passed away of this disease. I've had patients that have had ongoing months of symptoms. I literally just had a patient this morning who told me that six months or eight months later, he still can't smell or taste anything. So my heart goes out to you, like the millions of other people that were uh, affected by the disinformation that made it so much worse. Jeff Whitmer was active, spending time camping, grilling, and traveling with his wife and two kids. But in November of 2020, COVID changed his life. Now I have to pick and choose what I do. Jeff is suffering from long COVID and almost a year and a half later still endures crushing fatigue, headaches, a racing heart, body aches, and brain fog. I might have a severe headache for a week and then I'll go away. But then another week, I can barely remember, you know, what my wife told me this morning. But the fatigue never seems to go away. And that limits his ability to go out and play with his kids and live the life he had before COVID. It turns your life upside down. And thankfully, I have a very loving wife and kids that understand. But getting back to what I was saying, I was one of those doctors in March of 2020 that was getting together, put $10,000 into purchasing masks from overseas because we weren't ready. No KN95 masks. There was no PPE. And it was a choice, either let people die and suffer or get what we need so that we're protected when we're in the industry and trying to take care of people. And the sad thing is there's so many people that are politicians that just don't understand what we need. And they don't take the time to listen to the healthcare workers, the nurses out there and the patients to get them what they need. I think that should be the first thing that an elected official should be prepared to do is just listen. How do you think we, we fix this divide between the healthcare workers on the ground and the policymakers? I think one of the first things we can do is get someone like me elected to Congress. Uh, and I say that tongue in cheek, but I'm serious. We have people like Lauren Underwood, who is a nurse 
that got into office and very proud of her campaign because she's focused a lot on some of the issues that have been plaguing healthcare for quite some time. Rates of uh, maternal and child death among African-American women, protecting women's rights as well. We need people to get past this divide. We really have to democratize the ability for people to talk to their elected officials in spaces and in ways that aren't scripted, that they aren't kept away from, and that they're held in, in better account. We're seeing right now tons of people like in Florida and other places where they're fighting redistricting. Uh, they're trying to gerrymander districts. They're trying to make it so that our elected officials and politicians are not being held to account. Even where I am right now, we've had debates and other types of forums where some of the people that are running just don't want to show up. And I think the sad thing about that is we don't have a democracy and we're running away from a democracy if you can't question and you can't get informed information when you're voting uh, for your elected officials. So that's the number one thing that I think we need to do to get past this divide is increase the accountability of the people that are elected. And you're so right that it feels like everything is scripted. Everyone's looking for like that viral soundbite. You just spoke of districting and redistricting, and you are running for Congress in California's third district. And that is a district that has recently been significantly shaped. So tell us about that district, your district. Well, the funny thing is it's your district too. And that's what's so exciting about this is we are running in a district that's geographically diverse and pretty consistent at the same time. It has many of the same issues, whether someone lives in Truckee or Tahoe or the northern parts of the district, do they live in Plumas or do they live all the way in Enyo or Mono County, or do they live in Roseville, the largest city in the district. They are issues with respect to fires. Uh, some of the things I've heard you've knocked on doors about and advocated for, you know, with the most recent elected official, Tom McClintock, who was representing this district before it was redistricting. And that is quite honestly the epitome of someone who would not listen to his constituents and do the things that needed to be done. But we have 20 million, and not in this district specifically, but in California, 20 million acres of forest land that needs to be either prescribed burned or mechanically thinned, where that fuel reduction needs to happen so that we don't have those runaway fires like we've had for so many years, like the Calder fire. I'm so glad you're talking about this. It's so important. It is, because whether it's someone like you or it's someone, like I said, in the far reaches of Mono or Inyo County, these fires, they don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent. They don't care if you have means or if you are looking to try to get a leg up or anything. If you're lower income, they can burn your house down. They can take away your business. Those are things that matter. People care about inflation. As we explain to people, if the cost of gas goes up and we're not doing anything about it, that raises the cost of everything else, getting your foods from the grocery store, getting the supplies to build your home. And so these are the issues that we're focusing on. We're focusing on inflation, focusing on healthcare, we're focusing on the fires. And I think the unique balance and difference that we have, and the advantage that I have, is I'm simply not a politician. I'm someone that has these real life experiences luckily has had the opportunity to speak to you and listen to people like you and other constituents in our district and be your voice. And that's what I'm hoping to do, is actually be your voice in Congress. For those that don't know, I own my, my second house is in Truckee, and it is the place I want to retire to. It is so unbelievably perfect. And I feel like we have just gotten so used to these fires that we've adapted to when it's fire season, we're just going to be inside and it's the air quality is going to... And human beings are amazing at that kind of adaptation. 
I was affected from the Woolsey fire here in my Los Angeles home. We had a lot of damage. We had to move out for three weeks, smoke damage, the whole thing. And then last summer, we were so impacted by the fire that was the smoke in Truckee was so thick that you could not leave the house that we had to leave. And we're obviously privileged enough that we could have left. So many people, so many kids who are growing up inhaling smoke. And for those that don't live in California, it's really hard to describe the damage that these fires do and how it affects our health. On the health aspect, you're 100, 1,000% correct. I had the privilege of taking care of people who were evacuated to Green Valley Church during the Calder fire. And so some of those people had secondary burns on their feet because they were running out as fast as they can stepped on things that were hot, smoke inhalation problems, had to get their medications refilled. My own seven-year-old son, to your point, luckily, those fires didn't directly threaten our home. Air quality was worse than it is in some developing countries. My seven-year-old son has asthma, uh, and he couldn't go outside and play. And when you're talking about how resilient people are and human beings, we're resilient, but we're also very vulnerable and very fragile. And so for a lot of people, getting evacuated from your homes, staying indoors for weeks on end, it causes depression. It causes anxiety. Flames were all around the family as they drove to get away. We were so traumatized, we, didn't, we got lost. We didn't know we were, where we were going. The queens eventually made it to an evacuation center with their kids, but the next day, they found out that their rented house had burned down. They've settled in a home close to their old neighborhood, but Megan says the fire still lives with them over a decade later. I would be in the drawers in the kitchen cooking and looking for something, and I'm like, where? That I got, oh, it burned in the fire. I mean, that would kind of, um, kind of sadden, you know, kind of sadden us. These are the negative externalities. These are the negative side effects of not having proper fire policy, climate change policy, or any of these types of things. When you got into the race, it looked like you were going to be uh, running in a district with an incumbent Republican. And now you've been redistricted to a district that is represented by a Democrat. But that Democrat has also been redistricted. So it is an open seat. How do you plan and execute a campaign with so much flux and change? Yeah, I welcome change and flux. I feel like that's part of the things I've been living in for the past 20 years of my life. You always have to be on your toes in healthcare because things can change in a minute. With this type of volatility that's occurred, there's been a lot of positive return for us. There's been a lot of upside. We entered this race literally when I came in. I was looking at some of your tweets, and at first I was like, "Okay, well, I'm not going to jump in this race if Alyssa's is going to run. I said, that's not going to happen." <laughs> you know, I, I saw that tweet. I was like, "I'm not doing that." But then at that, I said, "Well, that's 2024. So 2022, I got a little time to maybe make this better." But you know, people laughed because they were like, "Look, you're going to run against Tom McClintock. Look, we get it that you were a veteran and a doctor. That guy is impenetrable. It's not going to work." We still raised $315,000 that first quarter out the gate, which surprised a lot of people. The next quarter, we raised three sixty-five, dollars And the good thing is that quarter was redistricted. So all of a sudden, this district got eight and a half points bluer. And to our advantage, we were the only people that declared at that point. So they were like, okay, it got eight and a half points bluer. You've raised almost $700,000. And I think Representative McClintock thought, you know what? I think I'm going to run south of here. Because <laughs> I don't really like to work that much. And I think this would be a challenge. 
seriously, introducing myself to Plumas. And we were like, please run, because we'll talk about you in Plumas. We'll talk about you in Nevada. We'll talk about you everywhere else and just run on your record. So he didn't run, and now it's an open seat. We're running against two Republican challengers. We just had uh, a debate a couple of days ago against one of them. And again, we think the statistically it's a higher probability now that it's an open seat. We're out there every single day explaining to people why my not being a politician, my being a veteran, my being a doctor that's seen over 20,000 people, my being a father and a son and a husband makes me the most qualified to listen to people, understand their issues and advocate for them, whether they're Democrats, Republicans or independents. You don't want your house to burn down. You want fair health care. You want to save for your retirement. And you want your kids and your streets to be safe. Those are all nonpartisan issues, and we can get there together if we focus on the issues and less on partisanship. And how do those issues change when you think about the national critical issues facing America? And what do you think you'll be able to contribute to that conversation? I think that they multiply because the inflation problems that we're having here in the district are the same as they are all over the country. So when people are trying to figure out, okay, what policies can help us get through this? We still need supply chains to come through this country first, as opposed to go through other countries and 70% of the chips that are made in the world semiconductor chips being made in Asia. That was good at a period in which we wanted to lower the tonnage percent of shipping globally, but then that destroyed a lot of industries here. So whether you are in our district, California third, or you're in Ohio, or you're in Texas, these other types of places, whether you are a woman facing one of the hardest choices that you may ever make in your entire life in terms of your family planning, keeping a child versus not, having and exercising your constitutional rights over your body, We right now have a case in front of, well, that's been argued in front of the Supreme Court, and we're going to know within six weeks or so the damage that's going to come out of that, what comes next, and how we can get things like the Women Help Act through Congress to codify uh, these important things that we need to do to protect women's rights. We're going to know whether that needs to be done. The issues that are seen all over the country are issues that are also being seen in my district. What is refreshing is that you answered that question still in a way that identifies people instead of the big scope of what's at stake. Because normally when I ask that question to people who are running, they say our democracy is at stake. And I think that could very much be true, but I don't think it's what people are concerned about on a daily basis. People are concerned about how to pay for gas, how to get their medications, how to put food on the table, make a living wage, affordable housing. I mean, it is so refreshing to hear you because it's the little things that make up the big things. And right now, there are so many big things happening. So many fundamental rights are under attack. So I am just going to rapid fire ask you your positions on a few hot button issues. Is that cool? No, let's do it. Yeah, this is uh, just to finish up on what you were saying. This is luckily why I feel my training as a doctor is so critical because we are trained to focus on individuals first and not lose people in the crowd. Okay, so here's some rapid fire issues. Abortion rights. 
100% support a woman's right to choose. It's a constitutional right, and it should not be infringed upon, just like the First Amendment and every other constitutional right that we have. The fact that we have medical providers who are making clear the impact of uh, what it would mean for Roe to be overturned, the fact that medical providers have a much clearer understanding of the health of women and the impact, um, not lawmakers, right? Not lawmakers who've been making restrictions that are not grounded in, um, in, in real uh, necessary medical regulations. The Equal Rights Amendment. We should make sure that is fully ratified. We met actually at uh, that event in L.A. And I think any society that does not value its most important members, every single one of us here has had a mom. Uh, Every single one of us here usually has a sister or someone else that they love that should be 100% protected, have the exact same wages as their male counterparts. uh, And that's a no-brainer. Trans rights in schools. Yeah, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've been endorsed by the Stonewall Democrats in the state of California uh, because we want to make sure that every single person, regardless of how they identify or who they identify, have their full protected rights, whether it's in school or in any public space that they involve. Access to the polls. If we, going back to what you said just a minute ago, if you don't have access to the polls, you don't have democracy, you don't have anything. You basically have Russia, you basically have Ukraine, or like me, you basically are in a country like we were in Iraq that's in the middle of a civil war. Uh, We are fortunate in California where access in terms of mail-in ballots and stuff like that. But what we tell people is that the inability for people to vote in Mississippi or Alabama, these other types of places, affects our democracy here in California. So unless we pass Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Act, uh, which is one of the things I would focus on, hopefully we get good people in the Senate that care about that, then we don't have a real democracy on our hands. What should happen to members of Congress who supported the January 6th insurrection? Yeah, I'm excited, uh, to be quite honest with you. And it's funny that you'd hear someone say January 6th and excited in the same breath. But what I'm excited about is what's going on in Georgia right now and how there were some citizens that decided, you know what, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, says that an armed insurrection in our country, this isn't free speech. This isn't a peaceful protest when you go into uh, the Capitol, uh, storm the speaker and everyone else's uh, office. The vice president has to be evacuated by the Secret Service. And, you know, the Secret Service, they don't scare easily. And so the Secret Service moves the vice president out of the Capitol. It's not a peaceful protest. So I'm excited about what's going on in Georgia, that they are using the Constitution to hold a member of Congress accountable and say, look, you may not be able to run again, which I think is a valid uh, thing because you supported someone in an armed insurrection against the very oath of office that you took. So I think the people that did that should be held to account. They should be taken to trial and they should determine whether they are even legally able to run again for office. And what should be done about gun violence prevention? We, I feel, have a country, unlike many others, in which there's a lot of choice uh, and there's a lot of responsibility. But with that choice, whether it's owning a gun as a private citizen, uh, which I know you talked about in your book, or some of the Second Amendment rights that we have, comes with a lot of responsibility. Having deployed to Iraq twice, I think weapons of war should not be on our streets. I am, I'm a gun owner, too. That's not something I'm embarrassed about because I grew up on a farm, but it is something that's locked up. It's away from my kids. I had proper training for it. And again, I think we should make sure that criminals do not uh, have guns. They don't have access to them. I believe in extended 
and robust background checks, people that have been domestic abusers, people that may not be mentally stable right now because we know the guns are the highest ways in which people commit suicide. Those are people that we need the system to protect them and protect ourselves so that we're not running these situations and we have mass shootings uh, like we did in Newtown or one of the many mass shootings that happen, sadly, every few days in the United States. What happens if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker? Uh, I think the, the immigration rate in Canada, a lot of people may go up. It's a horrifying thought. It is because you have someone in him and a lot of his cronies, rather, that have put themselves before people. They put partisanship before people. Kevin McCarthy, in his own words, which would hold up in court, talked about talking to the former President Trump about resigning. Oddly enough, that never happened. Here's what Mr. Burns and, and, and Mr. Martin say about Kevin McCarthy. Quote, on January 10th, so four days after the attack on the Capitol, Kevin McCarthy convened a small group of House Republican leaders to share his thinking. Speaking with just three other top Republicans on a private call, McCarthy said he might call on Trump to resign. He conferred for more than 45 minutes with Steve Scalise, Liz Cheney, and Tom Emmer. So you, in his own words, evidence, like I said, I'm also a lawyer. You have someone who demonstrated where their priorities are. It's not for the country. It's for him first. It's for people like him first. And it's everyone else, second, third, or not even thought about. It's a scary thought. I think that's why we need to make sure, not just that we hold the seats that we have, but that we pick up seats like mine, as this is now a purple district. Uh, and I think we have a real shot to get real representation here and a, and a Democrat in this seat for the first time in over 25 years. We're so deeply divided. Right. There are people that hope that Kevin McCarthy becomes the speaker, which I can't even wrap my head around. But how would you work to bring people together in this country? And is it the responsibility of elected officials to do that work? It is for multiple reasons. So when we drive down the street, you're in L.A. right now, which has some of the best traffic in the country. And so I'm in Northern California, wherever you are, you're going about your day. You're stopping at traffic lights. You are abiding by the law. You take, we take for granted that we live in a functioning society, right? That you can get water, you can get everything else. Whether we accept that or not, the rules and the framework of our society are built upon the government that we have. If that government is dysfunctional, like it's been in the past, where the government shuts down or people aren't getting their services, or it unfortunately becomes part of the disinformation or misinformation machine that happened during COVID. People literally die. The society falls apart. We have hospitals that are overrun. At one point in Ohio, one in six people that had COVID were in the healthcare community. So we have these things when the government doesn't work. If the people that are in elected office, the ones that we entrust, whether it's to run the executive branch, the judicial branch, or the uh, legislative branch, are not there to advocate for us and a functional system, we all lose together unfortunately. And so the way that I look at it is I go back to my training, just like they say in the military, always fall back on your training. I took the Hippocratic Oath to make sure I put my patients first. Very proud to do that. Always breaks my heart if I see a patient passed away. And I took an oath to our constitution. Those are the types of things that I think we should expect our elected officials to abide by. It shouldn't be something where they're just staying in office for the sake of staying in office. And the one thing I'll in this, I guess, comment with is it's actually our jobs to keep them accountable. And that's not easy. We have to 
go to the town halls. We have to write them. We have to make sure that we keep engaged so that they know that there is a check on the system at the end of the day, and that's us exercising our constitutional rights to our democracy. I know how I'm going to support your campaign. I'm going to come and knock on doors and phone bank, and I'm going to donate money. But please tell people how else or people who aren't even in California can support your campaign. Thank you for that, Alyssa. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all your support and your generosity and how kind you've been. Literally, like I said, speaking to me a few weeks ago, not even knowing who I was, that just is a testament to, like I said, your kindness and your openness as a a person who is, you know, well-known in entertainment and very successful. There are three major ways in which I feel people can support our campaign and our run for the people of our district. One, go to our website, KermitJonesForCongress.com. We released the most comprehensive health care plan of anyone who's ever run. Increases access to mental health, increases access to opioid addiction-related services, increases public health investment. We do the same thing with respect to uh, student loans and education. Two, if you can contribute, please contribute. Now, I only say that because I have my campaign manager and my other staff on here. It literally takes three to four million dollars, unfortunately, to run a campaign. And until we have Citizens United overturned, until we have publicly financed elections and campaign finance reform, I have to be on the phone 40 hours a week to try to make sure that we get the funds we need to win. So there's that. Third thing, more existential, is to not just look at my campaign, but look at every single campaign in the country. That actually helps me because it holds people accountable. And it helps us when the elected officials know that you are watching what they do, that you are engaged, that you're reaching out to them, that you're reaching out to their offices. And these are normal people. I'm talking about the people who are benefiting and some of the people who aren't, but people that just say, you know what, I don't really feel like my voice matters. No, your voice matters. And the more you go out there and fight for your voice, the more we have to listen. So that's how they can support our campaign. It's just exercising those beautiful rights to democracy that so many people in the world, unfortunately, don't have. And we're so privileged to have many of us on. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is the excitement I see from people on the trail. I've had conversations with my campaign manager and staff at the end of the day when you're tired and you're exhausted, you've been hung up on a bunch of times, and you feel like you're just, you haven't seen your kids in a long time, you haven't put them to sleep. And you talk to someone who comes up to you and just gives you a hug and they say, I'm so happy you're running because I'm happy we have someone who cares about us. That gives me hope. It it really does. Because when I see people out there engaged, it gives me the energy I know I need and everyone else needs to be that funnel for your values, for your needs, and hopefully be your champion in Congress. And that's, that's really what I hope I can do. Kermit Jones, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, Sorry, not sorry. Thank you. My life has been guided by oaths. An oath to my patients to put their health first. An oath to my country to uphold the Constitution, our democracy, and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Right now, we are in the fight for our lives. The constant news stream is that Democrats are going to get clobbered in the next elections. Well, we just can't let that happen. Here's the thing. There are far more Democrats and Democratic-aligned independents than Republicans out there. If we voted, we'd win. But if we don't vote, the roadblocks to voting, the gerrymandering, 
the anti-American obstruction to our democracy may become almost impossible to undo. We recently saw that Kevin McCarthy said out loud that Trump's anti-American attacks on our nation meant he should leave the office of the presidency. Then he turned around and became best friends with the disgraced former president again in just a matter of days. That's who the Republicans are. They know what is wrong. They just don't give a shit. They are more concerned about power than about our nation. We have to beat them. We have to show up even when we don't want to. We can't let this narrative keep us from turning up. Primaries are happening. How are you helping? Now is the time. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.